We believe that God's going to speak to them the same way that he's going to speak to us. But again, before I get rolling too much tonight, can we also just show our appreciation for Pastor Fred? As he takes this month, as he takes this month off, can I be as bold as to start tonight with a challenge? I know we just finished 20 days of prayer and fasting, and food has never tasted so good. Amen? Oh, man. But can I just challenge us as a church for the next month to be praying for Pastor Fred? That as he takes time away from the mic to rest, that he would find himself closer to God than he ever has before. Because we got to realize as Pastor Fred grows, the church is going to grow. And as the church grows, our impact on the peninsula and God's kingdom is going to grow. Amen? Amen. So, like he said, I got hired towards the end of last year. And it, it's, it's been awesome. Pastor Fred is, is like my boss, the gre greatest boss ever. But... Uh, I get to serve alongside you guys. I get to serve you guys. It's been amazing. And one of the things that I've been doing on Mondays, Pastor Fred has mentioned it before, is I'll go up to Williamsburg, and I'll pick up a 15-passenger van from Williamsburg Developmental Housing. And sometimes my wife will come along, Cord sometimes, he tags along, and we will go to Catherine Circle. It's this government housing in Williamsburg. There's 24 apartments in this complex, and there are a ton of kids. We pull up in this 15-passenger van, and you would think that I was blaring what is it? Any of those ice cream man songs, uh, Yankee Doodle or something at 100 decibels because the kids come out of nowhere. They rush the van. Last week, if we would have had one more kid, we wouldn't have had enough seat belts. So it's time for me to start petitioning for a school bus or a stretch Hummer. You know, that's what I'm leaning towards, but we'll see what, we'll see what works. <laughs> but it's been awesome as we get to know these kids. I'll introduce you to one. This is Maya. Everybody say, oh, she's adorable. Your heart just melts when she gets in the van. But uh, we, I will admit, I made a mistake the first couple weeks. I have an iPad. Kenny Tyler up in Williamsburg has an iPad. My wife has an iPad. And we pulled out the iPads, right, with all the games on it. And all of a sudden, like moths to a flame, like bugs to a bug zapper or to light, all the kids just gravitate to the iPad. They're fighting over them. Basketball, out the window. Racquetball, all the facilities. No, no, no. They just want to be in front of a monitor with a game. And it's not a knock on the kids from Catherine Circle. That's most of the kids coming up these days. There's more gaming systems than I can name. Nintendo DS, PSP, PS3, Xbox 360. If it's got a monitor, they're playing it. But for a lot of us, we didn't have those growing up. All right, I'm not that old. There were Game Boys when I was younger, but my mom wouldn't let me get one. So I was in your shoes. I had to go outside and actually play games. I had to actually amuse myself with the neighbors, you know, get to know some people, get some exercise in. But for us, we that didn't have gaming systems, some of us that are a little older, what were some of your favorite games growing up just to play? Kickball, nice. Anybody else? You can just raise your hand. I'll call on you. Red Rover, Red Rover. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Denise. Capture the flag. Quality. Manhunt. Quality. Beth. Red light, green light. Kick the can. Nice. <laughs> what was that? Flashlight tag. Yeah, any variation of tag. Freeze tag, tag, any of it. It's all fair game. Stan. What was that? Prisoner's Base. Maybe I am too young. I should have stuck with my Game Boy. 
Cowboys and Native Americans. Politically correct. I like that. <laughs> Go ahead, David. Spin the bottle. I don't, I don't know that one either, Pastor Fred. I don't know, I don't know what that is. <laughs> Anybody else? Football in the mud. Yes. Mother may I. Anybody else? Duck, duck, goose. Yeah, that's my favorite icebreaker at RC. No, not really. <laughs> what about hide and seek? Anybody here ever play hide and seek as a kid? Oh, is that what you were going to say? Sorry, my mom was going to say it. I didn't even call my mom. I'm sorry. But hide and seek. I want to look at hide and seek tonight. And I would suggest that, that Jesus, the same guy who said, you know, let the kids come to me, probably played a few games of hide and seek because you don't have to be around youngsters too long before they're like, all right, count to 10, count to 30. I'm going to go hide and you got to find me. Kids love hide and seek. And I'd also suggest that Jesus probably played quite a few games of peekaboo. He probably played a mean game of peekaboo because that's just like a younger version of hide and seek for immobile kids that haven't learned to walk yet. You got to do all the work. It's like hide and seek, peekaboo. And it blows their mind because they haven't yet learned the, the concept of object permanence. Anybody here want to give a stab at what object permanence is? KG, college student. Yes. Like you said, when the, an object is no longer in front of you, you can no longer see it or touch it or hear it. You just assume it's no longer there. KG, gift card to Starbucks, my friend. <laughs> but yes, psychiatrists say that object permanence is the understanding that objects continue to exist even when they cannot be seen, heard, or touched. So when you cover your face up in front of that infant, they literally are like, where did that face go, right? And when you reveal your face, it blows their mind. And you're literally teaching that child the idea of object permanence. And psych psychologists say that by about two years old, a child learns the idea of object permanence. And by that time, they're also agile and mobile. And they will start playing hide and seek. And in the human heart and for youth, there's just a desire to find what's hidden. And there's a joy in finding it. So I wanted to hit on hide and seek tonight because it it applies to the verse I want to look at, which is Proverbs 25, 2. It says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. You see, hide and seek as a kid is a blast. Everybody loves it. But when, when God seems to be playing hide and seek in our time of need, all of a sudden the fun kind of goes out the window. When he seems to turn a deaf ear to our appeals or when we're just trying to find his will for a circumstance. Sometimes it's hard to find his will. Sometimes we might think, man, am I, am I praying hard enough? You know, is, is God upset with me? You know, certainly there are times where maybe you're not praying or maybe, maybe he's silent because he's trying to point out a sin issue in your life. But there are other times where you're praying your heart out. You're living obedient to God and you still can't find your answer. And it's simply because God conceals Proverbs 25, 2, it is the glory of God to conceal. And my big idea tonight that I want to unpack is that God wants more than for you to find your answer. He wants for you to find him, him in all his glory. Because the bigger tragedy than to not find our answer will be to find all the answers we ask for, but hardly get to know God in the process. 
There's a connotation to the Hebrew word for conceal that means to keep close. It's not like God's concealing the answer somewhere in the distance. He's keeping it close to him. Because if he just kind of threw it out for us to get the answer all the time, I'd be guilty of it too. We'd just take our answer, kind of give God a holy head nod, hey, hey God, and then go back to our business. But there's times when God conceals, when he keeps it close, so when we're looking for our answer, ultimately we'll find ourselves close to him. And it's almost though like Jesus knew at times we'd get frustrated. At times we might grow weary of seeking, of seeking when God seems to be hiding. But that's why he gives us a promise in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. It's a promise in Scripture. It's almost as if he's reassuring us of God's object permanence. That sometimes when you can't see God, when you can't hear God, when it doesn't feel like he's there, he's there and he's waiting to be revealed to us. And his presence is our greatest prize. But finding him sometimes takes faith, focus, and follow through. But there are times, like when you play hide and seek with that kid from the neighborhood that was off of me who seemed like he had a little bit of ADD and after about three or five minutes of looking would just be like, whatever, I can't find you. I'm going home. I'm going to talk to my mom, right, who just give up. And there are times when we're seeking God where we might just want to throw our hands up in frustration. And there are times when we're seeking God, but we're not seeking him in the right way. So I want to look at two reasons tonight that we might seek God and fall short. Not so we can focus on that failing, but so tonight, maybe for the first time, somebody can say, man, I encountered God. Maybe somebody for the first time in years will say, man, I, I felt the presence of God tonight. Amen? The first I want to look at is sometimes we desire intrigue over intimacy. Sometimes, just as humans, we can seek out the supernatural and forsake simple fellowship with God. When I look around this room, there's few people I've fellowshiped with more over the past years than David Godwin, sitting right here with his wife. I met David Godwin when he was, I think you were in high school. He had bleached hair. Yes, David at one time bleached his hair. Chandler knows he's not in his head. If you go back far enough in Facebook, if he hasn't untagged the pictures, you can find pictures of David with bleached hair. But since then, <laughs> since then he's grown He's grown into a man and a leader and a brother and just somebody who's blessed me. And recently, he got blessed with his bride, Hannah Godwin. Yup. A blessing to this church, a blessing to RC. Hallelujah. We got another female leader. We just import them. Thank you, David. But, uh, but yeah, our house, where Steph and I live, which has become known as the White House, was a place that they could come and just hang out and where Hannah would often spend the night when she was in Newport News. But there was one night. We stayed up to an irresponsible hour watching Finding Bigfoot Marathon on Animal Planet. Anybody ever seen this show? Nobody. We have, right? It's like four or five, maybe a half dozen, I wouldn't even call them scientists because I don't know if they're qualified in any way, that hear of sightings of Bigfoot or Sasquatch, and they are like in their cars, they're going to Colorado, West Virginia, wherever it might be, in search of Bigfoot. And they go out at night in the wilderness, They've got a camera, and they've got night vision, and they've got each other. And that's about it. So as I'm watching this show, I'm thinking, what is your plan? Because obviously they expect to find Bigfoot. They expect to find Sasquatch. It's in their heart. They're intrigued, and they think they're going to find him. So I'm thinking, 
what are you going to do when you walk onto his front doorstep, assuming he exists? And he comes tearing around that tree. What's your plan? Have you not seen the Jack Link's beef jerky commercials where Sasquatch throws men like Tom Brady throws a football with ease, skips him across the water like a rock? I mean, have you not seen what he's capable of? But it's almost as if they're fueled by intrigue and they've got no plan for what happens when they meet Sasquatch. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you Sasquatch is real or he's not real. Frankly, I don't care. But I will tell you tonight that God is real. And I will tell you tonight that I care about that. And he wants to reveal himself to us. But we got to be fueled by more than just intrigue. We have to have a plan for intimacy and relationship with him. Because God wants to reveal himself to us. True, he conceals, like it says in Proverbs 25 too. But you don't have to read through much of the Bible to realize that he also reveals himself. We've been reading through the Old Testament. Come on. Moses and the Israelites parting the Red Sea. Stops the sun in the sky for Joshua. Sends fire from heaven for Elijah. All these miracles in the Old Testament and even through the New Testament and even today. But they all pale in comparison to God taking on flesh and becoming Jesus Christ. The ultimate miracle. The ultimate self-revelation by God revealing himself to us. And how many of you guys know that God in the flesh, Jesus, would have been so easy for him to just left and right perform miracles throughout his life. Honest confession, I've never seen the movie Bruce Almighty. I've never even seen Evan Almighty. Honest confession, but I've seen the previews where Jim Carrey gets the almighty powers of God and just all the different miracles. He's parting the bowl of red soup. He's parting the sea of traffic. I mean, how many of us on 64 during traffic wouldn't mind just going <laughs> all the cars out of the way and you got just smooth sailing all the way home? That would be the best. Come on, I could think of something like every other minute, just something. Like I would ask for Skittles that actually taste like the rainbow so I can know what a rainbow tastes like. Like I could think of something. But if we look at the life of Jesus, three years of public ministry, if you add up all his miracles, it's about three dozen, 36. So that's once a month. Compared to the amount of miracles I would do, Jesus rarely performed miracles. And often it was in private, and often he would... Swear people to secrecy. It's almost like he knew that intrigue over miracles wouldn't really spark genuine intimacy. And yet in spite of that, in John 6, we see such a large-scale public miracle. Jesus feeding the 5,000. And that's 5,000 men with women and children. Could have been double that. We don't know. But he feeds them with five loaves and two fishes. Jesus shows that God cares about the smallest details, our hunger. God cares about the smallest details. He cares about your hunger. He cares if you don't have matching socks. He cares about the smallest details in your life. And he's almighty. And this caught the people's eye. The fact that Jesus not only had power, but he had compassion. It's a rare combination in our humanity to see that. And he got their attention by feeding them, by this miracle. So the next day when they wake up and Jesus has moved on to Capernaum, they're like, where'd he go? They're freaking out. And there's almost this comical chase scene of the people jumping in their boats. I just see pictures of fishermen, you know, all of a sudden becoming crew teams and rowing across the lake as fast as possible. And then Pastor Fred of his day jumping in his jet boat and flying by all of them. But I just get this image of, of almost like a school of fish chasing a lure across that lake. They had experienced their first miracle. They had had time to digest it, and they were spoiling for more. Jesus had the crowd. Come on, we just went through the, the primary season. We're coming to its peak. And it seems like every 
primary season, there's one candidate who comes to the forefront. He's in the lead. And it seems like they always make that one blunder. They say something, they do something, and then all of a sudden, their whole campaign is in the tank just because of, of one blunder here. And it kind of shows the fickleness of our humanity. And, and God doesn't want to be treated like that. But we see with Jesus, the crowd catches up to him, and you can almost hear him saying, speech, 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 because they want more. And Jesus complies, and he says in this speech, the crux of his argument, his main driving point that he drives home is, eat my flesh. Eat my flesh. It's almost like you can see the mothers going to cover their kids' ears, and the kids that were about to run and play with Jesus are now like, I just want to go home, right? Because it, it's, it's a tough saying. It says in, in verses 60 and 66 that some say this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And that many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Why would Jesus do this? We know everything God does and everything Jesus did was intentional. Nothing was by mistake. So why did he do this? Well, if we turn to verses 26 through 31, this is the message version, his conversation with the people. It, it highlights why he did it says, Jesus answered, you've come looking for me not because you saw God in my actions, but because I fed you, filled your stomachs, and for free. Don't waste your energy striving for perishable food like that. Work for the food that sticks with you, food that nourishes your lasting life, food the Son of Man provides. He and what he does are guaranteed by God the Father to last. To that they said, well, what do we do then to get in on God's works? Jesus said, throw your lot in with the one that God has sent. That kind of commitment gets you in on God's works. But they waffled. Why don't you give us a clue about who you are? Just a hint of what's going on. When we see what's up, we'll commit ourselves. Show us what you can do. Moses fed our ancestors with bread in the desert. It says so in the scriptures. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is one of those moments where I, I read my Bible, and I wish I could be there because I would be like, what kind of short-term memory loss are you people struggling with? Show us what you can do. Just 24 hours ago, five loaves, two fish, fed 5,000. Pretty impressive. Are you that dense? But the Jews believed that just as the first Moses called down manna from heaven, so would the new Moses, the Messiah. There was a book called Baruch. It didn't make it into the authoritative canon of Scripture, but it would be read outside the temple. And it said in this book that the Messiah will begin to be revealed and those who are hungry will enjoy themselves, and they will moreover see marvels every day. And it will happen at that time that the treasury of manna will come down again from on high, and they will eat of it in those years. So to these Jews, they wanted to believe, but they wanted more marvels. They believed that they would see marvels every day. They were hooked on intrigue. They wanted to find their Messiah through miracles and marvels and intrigue, and then maybe at that point offer their commitment and offer their intimacy. But there's a quote by Dostoevsky that speaks to people with this perspective. It says, the genuine realist, if he is an unbeliever, will always find strength and ability to disbelieve in the miraculous. And if he's confronted with a miracle as an irrefutable fact, he would rather disbelieve his own senses than admit the fact. This is where it gets good. He says, faith does not spring from the miracle, but the miracle from the faith. Jesus realized that faith wasn't going to spring from his miracles. That genuine intimacy wasn't necessarily going to spring from intrigue. And it wasn't just this crowd. You see it throughout the Bible. We've been reading through the Bible as a church. We just got through Exodus. You see the Israelites 
led out of Egypt by miracles, these plagues. There's the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. God is leading them with a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, the miracle of manna from heaven. They're at Mount Sinai, and God's manifest presence is there, and what do they do? They make a golden calf. They make idols and bow to that. We see throughout history, intrigue doesn't necessarily lead to intimacy. Jesus realized this, and he wasn't interested in sensation seekers. He wanted hard-nosed, hand-to-the-plow, faith-filled followers who would intimately follow him. You see, in his speech that he gave, he also said something very profound. He said, I am the bread of life. It's in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whatever your hunger is, whatever your need is, he's your ultimate source of nourishment. It's interesting in psychology, often hunger and need are used synonymously. Like we have a hunger for belonging. We've got a hunger for knowledge. We have a hunger for significance. We have a hunger for intimacy. What Jesus is saying is no matter what your hunger or need is, I'm the source. Seek intimacy with me and you'll find these answers. So it's telling when, when all these people are leaving because of this hard saying that Jesus turns to the 12 remaining disciples and says, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Come on, that's intimate faith. How many of you guys know they were probably as confused as the people that turned and went the other way? But Peter had faith and believed that he was the Holy One of God. And it's that kind of intimate faith that led to the miracles in Acts and not vice versa. And I'd like to say, you know, a flip just switched with the disciples and they never had any problems after that. But that's not what we see. If I had another 30 minutes tonight, I'd explain how they struggle with position over passion. We see the disciples arguing who would sit next to Jesus, his right hand in heaven. Not so that they could be close to Jesus, but just so they could be above other people. We see people struggle with this. Get a position for glamour and glitz and then become professional Christians and lose their passion. But as Pastor Fred would say, that's another sermon for another time. I want to close with, with one more point. It kind of goes hand in hand with seeking mountaintop ex- supernatural experiences of intrigue. What about when we're in the valley? When we're in the valley and we seek comfort over communion. You see, sometimes the places we long to escape from are the very places we commune with God. Often it's not in escaping our discomfort and suffering that we find God, but in the midst of it. It's not on the other side of the suffering, but it's in the middle of it. We're talking about the disciples. As Jesus ascends into heaven, as Jesus resurrects, the last thing he tells them is stay in Jerusalem. Those aren't the words the disciples wanted to hear. Jerusalem is where the person they just intimately followed for three years was convicted and crucified. And in their minds, they're next on the list. Not exactly the most comfortable situation. They probably would have wanted to be anywhere else in the world. But you know what? Because they were obedient, God poured out his Holy Spirit on them. And he upped the ante of intimacy and communion that we can have for him for the rest of history. There's a poet from New Zealand. His name is James K. Baxter. And he writes this short story. It says, a man in Australia decided that life was too hard for him to bear. However, he ruled out suicide. Instead, he bought a large corrugated iron tank and furnished it simply with the necessities of life. He hung a crucifix on the wall to remind him of the rabbi and to help him pray. There he lived a blameless, solitary life, but with one great hardship. Every morning and evening, volleys of bullets would rip through the walls of his tank. 
He learned to lie on the floor to avoid being shot. Still, the bullets ricocheted off the corrugated iron, and the man sustained several wounds. The walls were pierced with many holes that let in the wind and the daylight and some water when the weather was wet. As he plugged up the holes, he cursed the unknown marksman. When he appealed to the police, they weren't helpful, and there was little he could do on his own about the situation. Slowly, he began to use the bullet holes for positive purposes. He would gaze out through one hole or another and watch the people passing by, the children flying kites, lovers walking hand in hand, the clouds in the sky, the flight of birds, flowers in bloom, the rising of the moon. In observing these things, he would forget himself. Now the day came when the tank finally rusted and fell to pieces. He walked out of it with little regret. There was a man with a rifle standing outside. I suppose you will kill me now, said the man who had come out of the tank. But before you do, I would like to know one thing. Why have you been persecuting me? Why are you my enemy when I have never done you any harm? The other man laid the rifle down and smiled at him. I'm not your enemy, he said. And the man who had come out of the tank saw that there were scars on the man's hand and feet and that those scars were shining like the sun. Sometimes when we're in a place of discomfort, we wish we could build ourselves a comfortable corrugated iron tank or whatever our version of it might be. But sometimes our cries for communion with God, the answer isn't what we would think it would look like. Come on, we don't have to look much further than the Beatitudes, where Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. It's easy to think of these like maybe this is just a verbal pat on the back for people who aren't doing so well. Like, you don't have health, you don't have wealth, you know, you're crying more than you're smiling these days. So here's some, here's some words of encouragement. Take them, hopefully it helps you psychologically. But no, Jesus meant this as biblical truth. Come on, here at the City Life Church, we say all the time that he offers us eternal life now and forever. It's not just eternal life in heaven that will hopefully outweigh the sufferings that we have in this life. I love what Pastor Fred was saying last week, how do we want to condense the statement to heaven now, heaven forever. But you might ask tonight, where does suffering fit into that? Come on, how, how does suffering fit into heaven now, heaven forever? Well, let me explain. Self-sufficiency has been a lie that humans have bought into since the Garden of Eden. We see Adam and Eve bit the apple because they could, thought that they could be self-sufficient. They thought they could be even with God. And we even see it leftovers of it today as you think into being independently wealthy it's like the gem on the crown of western society but even those who are who have a a comfort in this life they have a facade of independence to those people god can seem demanding he can seem threatening when he says you know what lose your life and you'll find it leave everything you have and follow me but for those who are suffering there's a fresh realization that he's our only hope our only true provider, that he is what we should ultimately pursue and cherish. There was a commentary that I was reading that translated, blessed are the poor in spirit as blessed are the desperate. And you see, if the desperate, suffering, uncomfortable person is more apt to cry out for communion with God than the rest, then that person indeed holds an advantage over those who seem comfortable in this life. In fact, one could say as Jesus did that that person is truly blessed. Jesus meant what he said. Amen. But often when we're in the midst of mourning, when we're in the midst of suffering, it feels like God is getting colder and colder rather than hotter and hotter. You know, when you hide something and people are looking for it, you're like, no, no, you're getting colder. You're getting colder. And then you get closer and say, oh, you're getting hotter, hotter, hotter. 
Sometimes when we're suffering, it feels like God is getting colder and colder. When really he's so close, he could burn us spiritually. We look at Job and, and Psalms. There are two books in the Bible that deal with this. Neighboring books, esteemed differently. Come on, most people, when they pick up their Bible to read, Psalms is probably in like their top ten, top five, maybe even top three. Job, probably not. <laughs> but they both deal with this, this issue of finding God in the midst of our suffering. In Job 13.1, it's interesting. Job cries out, why do you hide your face? And in Psalm 13.1, David cries out the same thing. Why do you hide your face? If you know the story of Job, he loses his wealth, loses his health, loses his family. And it feels like he's completely abandoned. But if we read Job 1 and 2, we realize that God and the heavens were focused more on Job than they ever could have been. That God was just waiting to reveal himself, to see how he'd respond. We look at David chased by King Saul, hiding in caves, persecuted, cries out the same thing. Why do you hide your face? And both of them learn God's object permanence, that even when we can't see him, even when we can't hear him, even when it doesn't even seem like he's there, he's there and he's waiting to reveal himself to us. If I could have the uh, worship team come up, I just want to close tonight with another verse out of Psalms. This is David again, and he says, Conceal me in the shadow of your wings. Interestingly enough, the word he uses for conceal is the exact same one that Solomon uses in Proverbs when he says it's the glory of God to conceal. It means keep me close. David is saying keep me close in the shadow of your wings. He's realizing like Jesus said that God is the bread of life. As we seek him, as we're intimate with him, we will probably find those other answers we're looking for. You see, whether you're looking for God in a mountaintop experience with supernatural intrigue or you're shouting for God to show up in the midst of our valley to provide us with comfort and a cure, we will often find that God conceals. But in searching for what God keeps close, we, like David, should ultimately seek intimate communion with our creator to also be kept close in the shadow of his wings. You see, God loves to be pursued. Why? Because to be pursued is to be loved. It's another reason that, that kids love to play hide and seek. Because when their dad or their grandparent or their friend is looking for them, it's just an extension of feeling loved. To be pursued is to be loved. God pursues us. We talked about Adam and Eve when they fell. When they fell for that lie and sinned, what does God do? He finds them in the garden. He pursues them. When we were stuck in a rut of sin, what did God do? He pursued us even to the cross and his son to die for us, to offer us salvation, and to offer us life. You see, God wants to be, do more than just give us the answers we need in this life. He wants to give us more than the keys to this life, because God is life. And intimacy with him is one way that we will achieve life abundant, eternal life, heavenly life, in this life. In this life. If everybody could just stand as we close just with every head bowed and every eyes closed. Just praying for this service. I know they're gonna be, there were going to be people in here that are like the crowd in John 6. They're seeking God, but they're not yet sold. <laughs> Jesus has their attention, but they haven't yet offered commitment. You haven't yet offered your heart to him. And Jesus, like he asked Peter, like he asked the disciples, he's asking you tonight, are you all in? Are you in or are you out? Because Jesus wants more than fans. 
Jesus wants more than fickle followers. He wants people who will commit their life to him. And tonight, if you can't look back into your life and and find a moment where you said, God, I want to commit my life to you. I realize you're the bread of life, and I want and desire you over everything else, and I give you my life. Be Lord and Savior over it. If that's you tonight, then just with every head bowed, every eye closed, just raise your hand before God so that he can recognize it and see it. for others in here. Perhaps you've been praying again and again. God, why are you concealing your face? Maybe why are you concealing this answer? Maybe you fasted for 20 days looking for vision for something, looking for an answer, and you've been frustrated for the past week thinking, man, where is it? Where's my answer? Where's the key I'm looking for? Let your cry tonight go from why do you hide your face to Lord God, conceal me. Keep me close in the shadow of your wings, Lord, knowing that as we find intimacy with God, as we find communion with him, as we seek him as the bread of life, he can take care of every hunger, every need. Oh, God, we continue to seek your face. And as we go back into worship, just want to open up the altar just as a place to to seek God to seek intimacy with him. Again, I hope tonight some people might be able to say after years for the first time, I felt God's presence tonight. God touched my heart tonight. But let's go into worship.